The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Exploring our oneness with spirit and each other. Unity Online Radio. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Last week, I did this show in person at Unity Online Radio headquarters just outside my old hometown, Kansas City. The Delta Lounge at LaGuardia had a buffet of almost all vegan food. I mean, there was green salad and marinated kale salad, edamame, hummus, this beautiful ginger rice. Have you ever cooked rice with ginger and ginger juice? Well, who knew? I learned to do that in the Delta Lounge. And there was almond milk for the coffee. And then when I got to Kansas City, I had dinner one evening at Cafe Gratitude, all vegan, the next night at Eden Alley, vegetarian, mostly vegan, and I treated myself to breakfast magic at a place called Mud Pie Vegan Bakery and Coffee House. This is Kansas City, known for barbecue and once known for slaughterhouses. I grew up there. I remember when they opened the first salad bar, I thought they did it just for me. Well, guess what? The world is changing. Thanks to you and thanks to the wonderful guests who are part of this program. I'm Victoria Moran, a.k.a. the Main Street Vegan and host for this program. You can find out more about what I do at MainStreetVegan.net. After the break, we'll talk minimalism with Australia's minimalist vegan couple. And right now, we're going to be joining Ellen DeGeneres and a host of Hollywood celebrities who are raving over a new cookbook. It's actually more than a cookbook, but super recipes in there too. Food is the solution. What to eat to save the world. Its author is Matthew Prescott. He's a leading figure in the global movement to reform how we farm and eat. As senior food policy director at HSUS, he's a sought-after speaker and thought leader. leader, leader, I'm going to let that one go. And he spent the past 15 years sharing his ideas with Ivy League universities, Fortune 500 companies, and consumers. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be here. Well, congratulations on a bouncing baby book, which I hear is not just a great book with great recipes, but it's actually gorgeous. And you could put it on your coffee table and make converts that way. 
you you heard right i hope you know i guess i'll let individual people be the judge of that but yeah you know i kind of think of the book as like half manifesto half cookbook um the first half of it is all about the the impact of what we eat on the environment full of infographics and environmental photography and essays from experts and investigative reporting and then the second half is all vegan recipes to show us how to make a difference for the planet through what we eat. So it's kind of like, hey, here's what the problems are, and here's a solution, starting with your own kitchen. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's not only an easy solution, it's a doable solution, so that people aren't waiting for the government or somebody else to change something. We can change it ourselves. So tell us your history. How did you get started on all this? Well, you know, I've always loved food. I've always felt comfortable in the kitchen from my, you know, my earliest memories were reorganizing my family's spice cabinet and making really simple meals like that any kind of, you know, eight or nine year old would make in the kitchen sandwiches and things like that. And I've just always loved cooking. And when I was about 12 years old, my sister came home from school one day and she proclaimed herself a vegetarian I grew up in a really small town. I'd never even heard the word vegetarian before, let alone that one. And so I had no idea what to to do with that. You know, like any good little brother would do, I would make fun of her. I'd put my steak on the end of my fork and stick it in her face and make a mooing sound. Um, You know, all that classic little brother stuff. But my mom was much more accommodating. You know, if she had a pot of beef chili cooking for us, she'd have a pot of bean chili for my sister. If she was grilling hamburgers, she'd grill veggie burger. And I started to try some of these new foods, and I liked them tried more and more and more of them, I realized you don't really need meat to have a great diet, even as someone who loves food and loves cooking and eating. And, you know, eventually I learned more about the reasons, the ethical reasons for her diet. And I moved in that direction. And I've been very fortunate enough to just kind of make a career out of this love for cooking, this passion for the ethics behind using food as a tool to save the world And um, the book is just kind of a culmination of that career. I love that phrase that you just said, ethics as a tool to save the world. (laughs) We could use more of that. So I know that you have a a very powerful interest in, in the environment and what's going on there. But something that you talk about in one of the videos I watched with you that we don't hear a lot about is how much wild land gets turned into farmland because of our inefficient agricultural system. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, it's really unbelievable. A third of all the land on the planet right now, one third of all the land, um, and it's higher if you just count usable land, goes to producing meat, dairy, and eggs. It goes to the livestock sector. You know, one of the things that people don't realize, I think, when they're eating a ton of meat or a ton of dairy or eggs is that, um, you know, what goes into producing those products When we think about food waste, we think about what we don't eat after a meal rather than what we are eating during the meal. The most wasteful aspect of our food supply today comes from the fact that we're using animals as a middleman to get to protein. You know, we we raise land, we deforest rainforests to make room for growing soy and other forms of animal feed, farm animal feed. We grow those crops, process them, feed them to animals raise the animals, slaughter the animals, and then get protein at the end of all of that, rather than just using the protein that's already in plants. It's a totally wasteful and totally inefficient system that uses a ton of land, that displaces wildlife, that causes greenhouse gas emissions, and just all these other problems. And if we cut out the middleman, if we just use the protein that's already in plants, we'll have a much cleaner, more efficient system. 
which some of us have known for a while and many of us have acted as if nobody's ever heard before. So the argument that I have heard, particularly when talking to people uh, in the agriculture sector, is, but you can't use this land for anything except grazing animals. What do you say to that? Well, you know, it's not like we're growing soybeans on, you know, rocky cliffs and in caves. You know, we're growing them on land that used to be rainforests or other kinds of forest land or wild land. Um, You know, the Amazon rainforest may not have, you know, other great agricultural purposes as it is now, but it serves as a home to countless animals, to countless people. Um, You know, it's got all kinds of ecological benefits in terms of biodiversity and we're just cutting it down to make room for soybeans to feed to cows and to feed to chickens. And, um, you know, there's a better way. We don't have to do that. We can grow, you know, a, a lesser amount of crops just to create plant-based foods directly rather than, you know, growing, um, you know, so much of them to feed to animals first. Very exciting. So as an environmentalist, I'm sure that you've heard from people in the environmental community about your book and about all these ideas. And something that that has always puzzled me, Matthew, is that for all the vegans I know, and I do live in the vegan bubble, and I know a lot of them, I'm seeing 49-49 health and ethical, and maybe 2% environmental, if that. Why is this huge reason that ought to propel all of us in this direction not seeming to have the power to reach people that those other two arguments have? Well, you know, what we eat is so tied up with a lot of personal things. You know, it's tied up. It's all wrapped up in religion. It's wrapped up in tradition. It's wrapped up in family, of course, taste. And... There are a lot of environmental issues that environmental organizations focus on that aren't wrapped up in all those things that are easier from a personal perspective. You know, nobody has a religious background or a family background that would compel them to, um, you know, not recycle or to, to drive a standard car instead of a hybrid or to use, you know, bad light bulbs. Um, but when you start talking about food, you get into all these personal issues and it becomes a lot harder, I think, to digest what's going on. And so, You know, I would say historically environmental organizations have been reluctant to talk about this issue because of those personal implications. But um, we're now seeing that change. You know, the Sierra Club has an essay in my book. Um, The president of the NRDC, Ria Su, another another major environmental organization, has an essay in there. The president of the Environmental Working Group has an essay in the book, all promoting plant-based eating. And so we're really seeing a shift. I think in the environmental community, finally, where they say, you know what, enough is enough. The, the facts, the stats, the figures, they're right. We got to eat less meat. We got to eat more plants. And, um, you know, let's start uh, let's start campaigning around that. Greenpeace, wow. in fact, you know, Greenpeace, in fact, just launched a campaign all about eating less meat. Um, and I know other environmental organizations are about to do the same. So um, the tides are really turning. Oh, they are indeed. That What good news. Well, that's worth uh, cooking something from your dessert chapter and celebrating. So <laughs> tell us about the recipes. These are actually your recipes for the most part. Is this correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like I said, I've always loved to cook and I've, I've always felt comfortable in the kitchen. I love being in the kitchen. And, you know, I thought if the way, you know, whatever the saying is, if the way to somebody's heart is through their stomach, I think um, that that's true when it comes to ethics as well. And, you know, I think that for me, 
you know, one of the great things that opened me up back in those early days when my sister came home from school and announced that she was going to be a vegetarian, one of the, the things that really opened me up to those ideals was just the fact that the food was so good. You know, back before I became vegetarian or before I became vegan, I was really limited, I think, in my diet. I was just eating the same like meat and potatoes every day. And I didn't realize it at the time, but thinking back now, it was really boring. I'd never heard of nutritional yeast. I'd never heard of, you know, making a cheesy sauce out of cashews. These are, in addition to the ethics behind them, these are just great tasting foods. And so I wanted to create a book that was not only useful in terms of um, you know, kind of serving as a, a guide for, um, you know, information, but also that provided delicious recipes for people to jump right in. So, you know, you read a chapter about the environmental impact of meat production on land or on our water quality or on our air quality, then guess what? You can just turn, you know, 25 pages in the back, find a delicious recipe for cauliflower buffalo wings that have a lesser impact and just get going right away. Oh, that's thrilling. I love how you set that up. Now, your book has some, some wonderful design elements in it. So why did you decide to go that direction? I'm a visual guy. I'm a visual learner. Uh, I like design. I think that design has such a wonderful ability to move people. Um, you know, so many people learn through visuals. So many people are drawn to visuals. And this is why we see you know, the meat industry, for example, or the fast food industry, focusing so much on design and their advertisements on their billboards. I figured, let's turn it around. Let's use it to promote plant-based eating. Um, you know, I didn't want to just create a, you know, a, t- a textbook, basically. I wanted something that's beautiful to hold, that's useful, that can sit out on a coffee table, and that has infographics and environmental photography and other kinds of design elements to really draw the eye in. Well, that's wonderful because the more senses, I think, uh, where we can grab people and certainly when you have beautiful photographs. In fact, I was just reading today, there was an article in one of the UK newspapers that veganism has become mainstream because of Instagram, (laughs) because of these gorgeous (laughs) pictures of the food. So maybe we don't even have to taste it. We just have to look at it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's definitely true. Instagram has done wonders for vegan food. You know, you can now click a hashtag and see you know, 40,000 different photos of amazing looking foods that even if you're a diehard carnivore, you can't debate they look good. Mm. And that's a wonderful thing, too. I think the more people, the more people who eat plants, who get out there into the world talking with and dining with other people, they start to see what we've got going on. I mean, my daughter and son-in-law are in China right now, and they sent me a picture of this beautiful dragon fruit hmm. that they they bought on the street one night, and the man asked them if people in America eat dragon fruit. And my daughter, who speaks Chinese, told him that we only eat it sometimes because it's imported and it's expensive. Hmm. And he asked how much a dragon fruit costs over here, and she told him $8 or whatever it was last time she got one. And he said, Oh, Americans really appreciate fruit. (laughs) You know, some of them. So with uh, the wonderful work of, of people like you, it will be more and more of them fruit and veggies and all of the wonderful foods that we have to work with. So you are in Austin, which is a veggie friendly city if there ever was one. So tell us what it's like for people who don't live in a veg friendly place. 
what is it to be an Austin person and eat the way you do? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in, you know, the vegan Mecca. I think Austin's got to be one of the most vegan-friendly cities probably in the entire planet. And, you know, we have multiple vegan ice cream parlors and a vegan barbecue truck and vegan burger trucks, you know, galore. Um, you can't turn down a street without seeing vegan food, which is wonderful. At the same time, um, you know, I do a lot of traveling for my job, and I end up in a lot of random places in rural Arkansas and Mississippi um, I'm in the Midwest a lot. I'm in you know New England a lot. And I would say that one of the greatest developments in all of plant-based eating that I've seen over the last eight or nine years has just been the proliferation of vegan food everywhere you go. Um, you know, you can walk into any TGI Fridays anywhere in the country, whether you're in Kansas City or Des Moines, Iowa, and now get a Beyond Burger. Yes, um, isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's incredible. You can walk, you know, Tropical Smoothie Cafe. I was in rural Arkansas a couple of weeks ago um, in the middle of nowhere and went into a Tropical Smoothie Cafe and got Beyond Meat Chicken in my wow. wrap. And they all have them. And, you know, then walked next door to a coffee shop and got almond milk. In fact, I was really amazed. And this was in rural Arkansas. Not only did this coffee shop have almond milk, they had soy milk, coconut milk, and macadamia nut milk even. My Goodness. And so, you know, I just, I, I think, you know, 20 years ago when I became vegan, I, I honestly, it wasn't, it was easy to cook at home. There were fewer options in the grocery store, but they were there. Eating out was a little bit of a challenge. You pretty much had to stick to ethnic foods, which I love um, and, and I'm happy to do. But um, now it is just so easy. It's really easy. You can walk, you know, into any restaurant in the country almost and find a really tasty vegan meal. Love it. So what do you say to the hardliners who say that people who are just cutting back and eating less aren't helping very much and may, in fact, be hurting? Well, you know, I, to me, my own personal philosophy about this is there's a seat at the table for anybody. You know, if somebody wants to do meatless Mondays, if somebody wants to eat one veggie meal a day, if they want to eat one veggie meal a week, I say we welcome them with open arms, show them you know, how delicious the food can be. And, you know, set a good example for hopefully, you know, doing more and more when it comes to eating plant-based foods. Mm. You know, I think I, I became vegan. I became vegetarian, you know, almost overnight once I made the decision. But it was only after trying different foods that my sister was eating that I make that decision. Um, you know, a lot of people need to be introduced to the foods. They need to be introduced to the concepts. And so I say the more the merrier. Um, we, we should be an inclusive movement, not an exclusive one. I completely agree with you. And I think that you got all that great food in rural Arkansas, not because there's a vegan commune in that town, but because <laughs> a lot of people just prefer the food. And um, it is a great way to reach people. So the book, everybody, Food is the Solution, and from what I hear, I haven't gotten my copy yet, so I feel like I'm trying to talk to you with my eyes closed. But everything that I have heard and read is this is a book that deserves a place on your bookshelf, on your coffee table. You can also go to uh, Matthew's Facebook page, Food is the Solution, the website, uh, MatthewPrescott.com slash the book. We will put all his URLs and social media 
on the show notes if you go to MainStreetVegan.net and click on the word podcast, not the picture podcast for some reason. I need <laughs> to figure out why that is. You'll get a drop down for the show notes and you can find out um, just about anything you want to know about Matthew Prescott and food is the solution. Matthew, may you sell a million copies and make a million vegans. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. All the best. And everybody, have you ever thought about paring down, simplifying, minimalizing? Well, wait till you hear our next guest. I'll just bet they're going to get all of us to do it. Stay with us. If Unity Online Radio has helped you grow spiritually through programs like this one, please consider supporting this online radio programming. Visit www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for helping us continue to serve as the voice of an awakening world. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things, as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find Benefits of spiritually conscious living start now. For a time-tested method to live with purpose and release your infinite potential, tune in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. God is formless, yet takes many forms. What goes around comes around. Chant the name of the Lord and be free. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ever been confused by the variety and apparent contradiction within world religions? Join Reverend Paul John Roach every Tuesday for insight into those principles held in common by all the great religious traditions in world spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions. Using discussions, interviews, humor, insight, and practice, Practical advice, we will clarify the confusion and reveal simple yet profound truths. Call in with your questions and ideas and help break down the barriers that separate us from one another. That's World Spirituality with Paul John Roach, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, This week at the blog over at MainStreetVegan.net, there's a wonderful piece called Wait, Wait. I think she calls it Wait, Wait. Can you hear me? But Wait is spelled W-E-I-G-H-T. Because you know what? Not all vegans are skinny. And one of our wonderful graduates, Michelle Schaefer from out there in Indiana, has written a wonderful post about that. So do check it out at MainStreetVegan.net slash blog. And you can actually subscribe and get our fabulous and fascinating new post every single week. Also, a couple of weeks back, I introduced you to my seriously favorite nutritional product. It's called Complement, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, because it complements a wonderful plant source diet with the nutrients that we just could be short on. Vitamin B12, that one you know is is not negotiable. We've all got to get that in. Vitamin D3 and algae-based omega-3 fatty acids, DHA and EPA. So the good people of Complement, this is uh, Pamela Ferguson, a registered dietitian, PhD. She's been on the show. And also um, the no-meat athlete, uh, Matt Fraser, um, have allowed me to join forces with them. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash mainstreetcomp, or you could just go to their regular website, alpineorganics.co. Either way, tiny URL, Main Street Comp, or, or alpineorganics.co, and you put Main Street Vegan in caps in the discount code box, you'll get 10% off your one-time order or your recurring subscription. So whether you want to get your B12, D3, and omega-3s from Complement or some other way, be sure you get them. Because we want you to take good care of yourself and be around to make this world better for a really long time. Now, you know what else just might make this world better? If we all simplified, maybe quite a bit, maybe just a little bit. But what if we focus less on stuff and more on compassion. Well, that's the message of my guests whom we are about to meet. They are Michael and Marsha O'Fay, and they are coming to us from Australia, where it happens to be 5.25 in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Their husband and wife team behind The Minimalist Vegan, a blog dedicated to inspiring millions to live a compassionate and mindful lifestyle. They write about veganism, minimalism, mindfulness, productivity, chats with other inspiring people, healthy living and vegan recipes, and their first book, which is a beautiful, beautiful little minimal book, the beautiful cover perfect, The Minimalist Vegan a simple manifesto on why to live with less stuff and more compassion. Welcome, Marsha and Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Good day from well, Australia. 
<laughs> Thanks so much, and thank you for getting up so early to uh, talk to everybody on the Main Street Vegan Show. So give us some background that brought you to uh, to the intersection of two lifestyles. You know, minimalism is its own movement, and so is veganism, but you found a way to make those connect. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so our journey into minimalism started back in early 2014 after, you know, quite frankly, we were just a bit dissatisfied in our lives and we were felt like we were caught up in the status quo of wanting more, uh, whether it was more houses, clothes, cars, uh, career progression, better business performance. It was just a lot of wanting more and desiring more. So it wasn't until we came across a blog called zenhabits.net um, run by Leo Babauta, which was really just an authentic read about, you know, how this man transformed his life um, by, you know, implementing some of these philosophies of minimalism and Zen Bud- uh, Buddhism and productivity into his lifestyle. And it started to shift the paradigm and what we defined as success in our lives. So rather than pursuing more, um, we we started to really see the value in pairing back our possessions, um, the people that we interact with, our commitments, um, you know, really not to impede on, on our ambition, but to actually amplify that and to create more time to pursue the things that we really wanted. Um, and once we understood that, we absolutely fell in love with the concept and we became more ruthless in how we approached that philosophy. Um, later on that year, um, through the same blog, um, because uh, Leo is also vegan, uh, we came across a few resources that took us down the path of discovering veganism, um, and then we eventually watched a, a documentary, which I'm sure a lot of the audience members may or may not be familiar with, which is called Earthlings. And um, Marsha had been vegetarian for pretty much her whole life up until this point, um, and I was eating chicken kebabs and everything up until that day where we watched Earthlings that evening. Um, and then after watching that and understanding the angst and the cruelty uh, in which the world that we live in, uh, as it relates to animals, we became vegan overnight. And really we see the, the intersection between the two concepts of minimalism and veganism around consumerism and, and conscious consumerism. So, you know, minimalist not only takes the time to bring things into their lives that are absolutely essential and important. Um, but when you add the layer of veganism, it, it also considers the impact to animals, the impact to the environment um, and everything around you as well. Well, you brought it all full circle. Now, as a couple, were you both equally interested in this at the beginning? Marsha, what about you? Um, well, with minimalism, definitely not. I come from a very artistic family and, um, we tend to collect things and antiques. And so I used to be a collector of other, like I loved stationery, I loved bits and pieces. And so for me, when Michael introduced minimalism, I was a little, withdrawn from it and I didn't quite understand it. I thought it was a very boring lifestyle, a very sort of white walls, white furniture type of um, 
the thing that he wanted us to embark on and I kind of withdrew from that and said, no, thank you. But then the more I sort of dived into it and learnt more about it, it was you can still be yourself, you can still have personality, creativity, flair and all of that, um, but really just questioning as to why you're bringing in into, into your home and into your life. Um, so once you get to know it a little bit more, it, it becomes more meaningful and, and why you're doing certain things. But veganism, we were definitely on the same path straight away after watching it. It just was instant. So um, we've been really lucky, I guess, to have each other, to support each other through all of that. So, yeah. It helps. <laughs> My husband has come such a long way. I mean, when I met him, he still ate meat and I'd only dated vegetarians and ideally spiritual vegans, <laughs> but minimally vegetarians. And it just hadn't worked out. So I thought, well, what harm could it do? <laughs> you know, mm. you can go out once with this man. Well, bless his heart. He went vegetarian after two weeks and he has become vegan and he's just made so many changes. And today I said to him, do you think we ought to start composting? And he said, why? And I said, um, for bonding. And he said, let's bond some other way. <laughs> and I'm thinking I'll probably do it. And he'll probably, you know, come into the kitchen and have to step over the garbage. Uh, but it is wonderful. It's wonderful to uh, to be part of a couple and, and uh, be on this road together. So uh, congratulations to both of you for that. Now, I was interested, Michael, when you were speaking. I know you talked about the consumerism and all of the stuff that we have, and we'll certainly get into that. But it really piqued my interest when you talked about commitments and and having too much to do and maybe too many people in your life. Talk about that. Yeah, I think, you know, on, on the surface, I think when people start learning about minimalism, it is very much this practical approach to things like physical items that you own in your life. Um, but but when you really start to understand the philosophy, as I was saying before, and I'm glad you picked up, is it, it is really an approach that you can apply to everything. Um, you, you know, design aesthetic is known in some products out in the world, in tech products. But, you know, your calendar, um, minimalism could be applied to your calendar and it really shows what you prioritize in your life and what you deem is essential. Um, so when we did an audit of um, basically where we were in our lives when we started our journey with minimalism, we realized that we are committed to a lot of things that wasn't really lighting us up inside. Um, you know, we had social sporting commitments. Um, you know, we were tied into businesses that we were no longer interested in. Um, you know, we're spending time with a lot of people that weren't really um, you know, bringing us up, more pulling us down. Um, so we applied those principles of minimalism of, you know, less is more. And we started to make some really tough decisions about letting go of some of those commitments just to give ourselves some more white space so we could bring in things that we absolutely wanted. But, you know, we talk about simplicity. It's actually, it's simple to understand, but it's extremely hard to execute and you need a lot of courage to sort of do exactly what you want. And I think that's the essence of it. I love that you said white space. 
In my very first job, when I was 19 years old, I was working, of all things, in advertising for a department store. And I remember my boss brought me in on the second day on the job, and she said, all you have to know about advertising is, and I was expecting some major (laughs) pronouncement, and she said, white space. And she went on to explain that if a company is so cheap that they buy a print ad and they want to put so much stuff in there, nobody wants to read it. But if you can let go of some of that and just have the white space around, that's really going to draw the eye and in the business world, draw the customers. So I love that you said white space. So how do we do it? Let's just start with that. Let's say we have all these people in our lives and particularly nowadays with social media, we have people in our lives that we wouldn't recognize if they knocked on our door. How do you minimize that without saying, I value you? person A, and I don't value you, person B. Yeah, <laughs> it's, um, you know, as I said, it takes a lot of courage to make some of these decisions. And I think first you've got to be really confident in what you want. And I think that's what minimalism forced us to do. It, it, it sort of caught us out on where we were in our lives and, you know, what we deem as fulfilling. So, you know, for us, it came down to a really strong set of values. So that was minimalism, that was veganism, that was entrepreneurship, um, that was valuing our family um, and the relationships that we had there. So once you have a foundation of your values and what you want and what you want to do more of, really simple, then it's, um, now this sounds really, really ruthless, but it's um, not that everything needs to evolve around your values because I think there's definitely a lot to learn from others and people in your life who share different perspectives. And I think particularly as a vegan, um, it's really important to um, not alienate yourself away from people who do not share um, vegan values as well. Um, With that said, when we went through this process, um, you know, we were thinking, okay, who who are the people in our lives right now that are open, um, that are not following the status quo and like to challenge and question things? you know, who are those people? How can we start to spend more time with them? Um, likewise, who are the people in our lives that were probably a little bit more fixed in their mindset and weren't as open? Um, and, you know, and how can we effectively start spending less time with them? And you're absolutely right. It's not like you make this announcement and say, hey, you know, we've had a great relationship over the last 10 or 15 years, but, um, you know, I'm going in a different direction. Um, so it's it's... It's more, I think, um, minimizing the, 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 the points of contact with these people in your life. Um, but also, uh, you know, what I did with a lot of close friendships that I had for, you know, you know, I'm 30 now, but 25 years of my life, I had a really strong group of friends, um, but a lot of them had the fixed mindset. And I think for me, it was very frustrating when I was going through all of this change and they didn't understand um, where I was coming from. Um, for about a, a period of six months, I did sort of go missing. Um, you know, I really had to create a lot of white space in my life to really figure this out. But I think over time, as I became more confident in my values, I was able to go back to those relationships and approach them with a lot more conviction. And, and they started to be more open to, you know, what I was about. Having said that, I don't see them as much as I used to, but I understand what the perspective that they bring to my life. 
but I have instead, I've got different friends that I communicate with, you know, people like yourself, Victoria, who, you know, who are trying to change the world. And I try and surround myself with people like that more. And I think it just happens more organically. And I think people in your life, once they start to see that shift and that change and growth in you, it, it kind of makes sense over time. I'm interested that one of your values is entrepreneurship. And for somebody who's not very familiar with minimalism, that almost sounds like the opposite. When I think entrepreneurship, I I think business, spending a lot of time focused on building a business, uh, wanting your business to prosper and grow. How can that jibe with minimalism? Yeah, so this is probably one of the, the great challenges of minimalism is tempering this ambition that many of us have with the philosophy of simple living fundamentally. And, you know, after we had a chat to Joshua Becker of Becoming Minimalist, a renowned author around minimalism, um, you know, someone like him who has taken on multiple projects about minimalism, entrepreneurial projects, courses, books, things of that nature, we have an online store and we've got this blog. Um, but when we had a chat to him, he put it in a really great way. He goes, well, you know, minimalism is actually more about addition than subtraction, right? So, you know, the whole point of minimalism is to clear up space in your life, create more white space so you can do more of what you absolutely love. It's, it's rather than filling up your life with with a whole bunch of things pulling you in a whole bunch of different directions to the point where you can't pursue the things that you really want to do. And, and that could be being the world's best mother. That could be deciding your design company. That could be being a power lifter or an ultra marathon runner, whatever it is. It basically takes away those excuses so you can focus on what you absolutely love. For us, that's entrepreneurship. And for us, entrepreneurship means building a very ethical, compassionate, business that changes the world that shifts the demand of um, ethical products so for us to do our world's best work is a priority and minimalism is a tool that actually allowed as enabled us to pursue that if we didn't have the concepts of minimalism we wouldn't have started all these projects because we would have been um pulled, uh, uh, we would have been spread too thin across too many different areas of life I love this. I just feel that you're bringing so much together. Now, you are bloggers and you have an online store. And in my life, the most complicating element is the computer, the smartphone. If those were confiscated tomorrow, I would probably be upset for five minutes and then I would dance in the streets. So (laughs) how do you get your online life to to comply with these values that you cherish? I think it's more so just about really the time that you do have online is making it count and, you know, using it wisely. And then, you know, we, we make sure that we do spend time. We love to eat, with, especially when we travel. That's one of the things that we love doing. So I think it's one of those things that, well, while we're while we're at work, we're at work, and you know we try our best to kind of keep work life balance um, as much as possible when it comes to um, switching off. And you know we we do enjoy 
plugging completely off and and we did a couple of times just when we went away we even just turned off our phones almost you know we were just if if there was an emergency because we were sort of out in the bush but just to have someone to call or to text but we don't honestly even spend that much time on social media like we are on there when we have something to say or to share but we don't do it for the sake of doing it just because everybody else is doing it so i think that's when you when you have the um mental clarity to actually just follow your heart and follow what you want to be doing rather than dictated by how you know you should be running a business or an online store or whatever it is then it's very freeing to just be confident in what you're actually doing mm. yeah yeah it's 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 honestly victoria it's a, a big pain point for myself um you know it's uh, it's technology is one thing but really i think the resource that powers all of that is the internet and it's the internet which has created so many opportunities for all of us that's how we're having this conversation right now um and 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 i think it's the seeing technology and the internet for what it is and that for us we see as a tool it's a tool to build this message um and get it out there to as many people as possible so it's a very exciting time but but you're absolutely right on the flip side you know there's there's more and more information coming out about the repercussions and um i suppose the damage of internet addiction and that's causing us and for the expectations for ourselves and society so i i can definitely understand that point but you know there's been many conversations marsha and i have had about actually quitting social media altogether even though we run a business because we feel that that's the main thing that's actually tying us in to social media in the first place um is because of you know the fact that it might compromise uh, our opportunities to get the message out so it's a, it's it's definitely a conversation we've had many many times and i'm sure you have as well um and we've experimented with turning off our internet at 8 8 o'clock every evening um you know just to unwind um we've we've tried to experiment with different things working offline um but you know, the internet is still extremely powerful it is and it's addictive i mean my meditation timer which i love the insight timer plug for those good people um in the morning i've got my ritual <laughs> we all have our rituals mine is lemon water yoga or the gym come back and meditate have breakfast but you know when i pick up the phone <laughs> yeah. to click on the insight timer it is so easy to just see if something miraculous has just happened <laughs> in my inbox or facebook so it actually takes some good old fashioned discipline it sounds to live in this way yeah well it's you're absolutely right and i think there's there's you know when you look at your technology and your smartphone is is definitely something you've identified right i mean i i went 6 weeks with no third party applications on my phone so what i mean by that is is you know your phone comes with a certain amount of applications that um the manufacturer has made and created and then outside of that you start adding you know facebook or instagram or youtube or um you know if you run a business you might have accounting software and all these things and it builds notifications um you know what i might challenge the audience to do because i found this extremely liberating is actually remove all of those 
third-party applications. And what you'll have is just a phone that makes phone calls, that takes photos, that you can create a movie in. Um, but all of the things that you can do on a phone are now about creating rather than just consuming. And um, it was an extremely liberating process um, around that discipline you're alluding to. I love creating rather than consuming. You guys are really good writers, by the way. This is a beautiful book. I highly recommend it, listeners. The Minimalist Vegan by Michael and Marsha Ofei, O-F-E-I. So do, do get hold of that. That's such a beautiful idea, creating rather than consuming. And I think also being proactive rather than reactive. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll turn on the email because I want to send a couple of emails. But I see all these emails to be answered, and I feel that I need to answer them before I send the ones I wanted to send, and sometimes I forget entirely to send them. <laughs> and then so, two hours later, you're still on email. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you have one of my favorite chapters in this lovely book is called Misconceptions of Minimalism. And I have to admit that I had quite a few of those. And since we've been talking about business and a lot of vegans are entrepreneurs, one of the myths is minimalism is bad for business. Is it? <laughs> um, yeah, look, this, this part we thought would, uh, would throw it in there. And, um, you know, because there's a lot of arguments out there, the economic and macroeconomic level if we applied minimalism and reduced our amount of consumption, of course, um, we're going to reduce demand and then therefore reduce supply. Um, however, you know, we feel that, you know, that is something worth exploring because what would that world actually look like? You know, what would a world look like when there wasn't excessive amount of products out in the marketplace? What would the world look like if there, every business had a level of ethics um, and were creative in the ways that they actually helped the animals and environment and every, everybody around them. What would the marketplace look like if we changed the way we exchange value for goods? Um, you know, so I think rather than saying that fundamentally at an economic level that the markets will crash, I think a better question is to say, how do we make it work? And how do we make it work in a, in a way that it benefits everybody, the planet, the animals? So, you know, that's our stance on it. I think it's, it's, it's about asking a different question. And shifting where the, um, I guess, people are focusing on making money or even just, you know, we could be doing so much more for the environment. There could be a lot of jobs just by helping the environment thrive better and things of that nature rather than focusing on, you know, um, jobs that, that do the opposite, that do damage to the environment, which yeah. there's a lot of. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it, you know, it, it, again, it's the intersection of veganism and minimalism uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship. But, you know, we would love to see, you know, more businesses before they launch, you know, how much plastic is involved um, in this operation of this business. If it's a toy business, how can it be a sustainable toy business? Um, and, and how can we have a lot more niche markets that um, are a little bit more boutique spread across the world? Um, and what could we do with these resources or, or these large companies if they started to think differently about their responsibility um, to the world as well? So, you know, for, for us, again, it's, it's just let's start asking that question. And we feel that 
we're definitely smart enough um, as a world in the community to figure out something that's going to be really sustainable. Well, it, it's very exciting. To me, it's absolutely thrilling because when you get some of the stuff out of the way, then there's more room to spread your wings on a whole lot of levels. So I, I am very, very excited about everything that you're talking about. I do want to ask about one other chapter that you have in The Minimalist Vegan, and that is behind the fashion label. How does that uh, connect? Um, so I think it's mainly just talking about really questioning where your clothes are made, you know, are they made ethically, are they made without using any animal products um, or animal byproducts. I think it's really important for because fashion is a massive polluter on this planet. I think it's the second biggest polluter. So it's really important to start phasing out fast fashion and going more into slow fashion for people to really start valuing what they're wearing, looking after it rather than just wearing it for half a season because fast fashion is designed to fall apart quite quickly within a few washes. So it, it has this throwaway mentality, which, which is what's, which is what's causing the problem. And, and um, so, yeah. And, and there's so much uh, hardship that people undergo in, in, in so many parts of the world in the garment industry. And I find that being already vegan in all of my shopping and, and purchasing uh, choices, that when I learned about what's going on with people in this industry and trying to get away from that too, it's it's tough. And mm. yet, you know, every day I just get up and... <laughs> Keep trying and um, and try to remember. You know, it's very interesting. It's like, wait a minute, I wasn't going to buy socks at the store anymore, and gosh, I just did. So yeah. I I guess it's a little bit of a job. So just in our last minute here, you guys are so lovely. This has been just such a wonderful conversation. For somebody who's just thinking, well, maybe I'll get a toe wet in this minimalism world, what's your advice? Um, I would personally say just to start really questioning, be more of a questioner and just think about what you actually own and what you're bringing in to your life and home every day um, and think of it more, you know, do section by section because it can be very overwhelming to think, oh, my God, so, you know, I have to do it from from clothes to other possessions to food to friends and family and, you know, all everything that I consume, if it's content or whatever. But just do it section by section and just really get to know yourself. It's actually more about learning who you are and what you want out of life. Beautiful. Thank you both. I'm so sorry. We, we do have a hard stop at, no, at five no, before no. the hour. The book is The Minimalist Vegan, the website, Facebook page, and Instagram, all The Minimalist Vegan. Read this book. Seriously, it'll change your life. Thank you, Unity Online Radio, and thank you, our listeners. God bless you. Eat your veggies.
know that the Buddha gave us the formula to create a beautiful, abundant life? Did you know that Jesus gave us the formula to create a beautiful, abundant life? Did you know that both these masters taught exactly the same thing? And guess what? They did not teach the law of attraction. They taught the great paradox of prosperity. You can have anything you want. Why, you can have things you don't even know you want, but not by wanting them. Instead, put your attention on the vibrant presence of the divine within. Do that and your life will change. It has to. That is the natural order. Want to crack the code on the great paradox? Get Janet Connors' The Lotus and the Lily. Available everywhere great books are sold. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.